But I have to tell you, it was the most exciting thing I could ever do. This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app so that you don't miss a single episode. Marty Peterson was the first female CIA operative to be assigned to Moscow, probably the most challenging posting during the Cold War. This second episode turns to Trigon, the codename for Alexander Ogorodnik. He was an official in the Soviet embassy in Bogota, Colombia, recruited by the CIA in 1973. Marty and Trigon never met in person, but they shared information through dead drops and intelligence. We hear about the tradecraft involved. In 1977, she is arrested by KGB agents and taken to Moscow's infamous Lubyanka prison for questioning and talks in detail about her experience. If you'd like to support the podcast and get Marty's book, there are links in the episode notes. Now, Cold War history is disappearing. However, a simple monthly donation will help keep this podcast on the air. You'll get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you are helping to preserve Cold War history. Hello, this is Zachary Zabrowski from Manassas, Virginia. I am a monthly supporter of the Cold War Conversations podcast because of the wonderful stories that are shared from different areas of the Cold War. Please consider supporting to ensure that this program is available just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. If a financial contribution is not your cup of tea, then you can still help us by leaving written reviews wherever you listen to us, as well as sharing us on social media. It really helps us get new guests on the show. We're on Twitter at Cold War Pod and Instagram at Cold War Conversations. I'm delighted to welcome Marty Peterson, to our Cold War conversation. When did you first hear about Trigon? I learned about Trigon uh, before I left the States, before my date to arrive in Moscow. I, I was told about him after all my training, and my job was to read all of the files in headquarters up about this agent called Trigon. How was he recruited he had been uh, recruited by the CIA in Bogota, Colombia. Uh, we had a, a telephone tap on the Soviet embassy in Bogota. And we, from the calls that we heard, uh, we learned that there was a man, a Soviet, um, making calls to a local woman, a Spanish woman. And of course, Soviets were not supposed to go out with the local women. They were supposed to stick within their community, especially because this man, who we determined was uh, Trigon, was this Soviet official in the embassy, he had a wife in Bogota. So it was very odd that he was uh, really having quite a torrid affair with this Spanish woman. And from this, we identified him. This, of course, was before caller ID of or anything like that. We had to really determine from calls, uh, we had to identify him. Um, and when we did, 
we realized that he did other shady dealings, um, which made him vulnerable to a pitch from CIA. He he showed that he really liked the Western world uh, more than he did his own community. He he went out drinking, partying, uh, cavorting with this Spanish woman, and it seemed that he just didn't follow the rules. He was coloring outside the lines of his coloring book. And so uh, we learned the Spanish woman had gone home to Madrid, where her family lived, and was coming back to Bogota. And we learned through this call uh, that he made to her that he was going to meet her at the airport. So we arranged to meet her before she came through immigration. Um, and we asked her to talk to Trigon about perhaps cooperating with uh, someone who was interested in him. It was a very bland suggestion, but she understood right away. You know, I don't think we really recruited Trigon. I think he already had it in his mind that he wanted to volunteer to us. And so we set up a meeting with him through her um, in the Hilton Hotel in the Turkish Bath. A case officer went, and he can't write this. This is stranger than fiction. So this one officer went to the Turkish Bath at the appropriate time and met Trigon there. And he recruited Trigon. But like I said, Trigon was was a very eager recruit. He got the idea very quickly that it, it would mean a lot of money and probably a way to get out of the Soviet Union and out of the life that he had. So he agreed to spy for us there, and he began to provide uh, secret documents from the Soviet embassy in Bogota to us. And we trained him in all the spy gear that he was going to have to use in Moscow. He agreed to go back to Moscow and spy for us for a couple of years. And then um, we had a way of exfiltrating him out of Moscow um, after that amount of time. So that was how Trigon came to be our spy. We gave him um, training on how to find dead drops. Um, if you say that that your dead drop package is it's concealed in a brick and we throw that brick on another pile of bricks, you have to know what to look for and how to determine which is your brick, which is the secret cache. So those were the kind of things. And we taught him how to take pictures with a very miniaturized uh, camera that was concealed in a fountain pen and a large, very classy fountain pen. And he did that with great ability. He was he was an eager spy, and he was technically very capable. So that's uh, what we trained him to do. We taught him how to use secret writing uh, carbons. We taught him how to receive a radio message in code once he got back to Moscow. So we trained him on most things that he would have to use once he got back to Moscow and how he would communicate with us there. Would he have been receiving these messages via a numbers station? Yes, it was a, a broadcast out of Western Europe, and it, he would receive numbers. He would copy those down and then use his one-time pads to decode those messages. And some of the messages he passed to us in dead drops on the street in Moscow were encoded using those same 
numbers in one-time pads. Now, I understand he had a particular stipulation regarding working for the CIA. Can you describe that? Yes. Um, He knew how difficult it was going to be when he got back to Moscow uh, and how dangerous it was going to be for him. And the last thing he wanted to do, if they if they caught on to him, if they became suspicious, uh, he didn't want to be tortured. So he requested, and it, it was his one stipulation, that we provide a means of his um, committing suicide uh, in the event that he had gotten caught or somehow was arrested. So he had a pen, this beautiful fountain pen, which he carried in his pocket all the time, and that was unmodified. And we told him that the pen that contained the poison would be provided to him in Moscow. So he had three pens, the unmodified, the pen with a camera, and then the pen with a uh, ampule of poison in the barrel where the ink was kept, was, was stored in this fountain pen. So the U.S. government agreed to this, which was shocking to me. I was a new officer. I had no idea we would agree to that. Um, but it was similar to sending someone to war without bullets. I mean, it was his stipulation and how, how he saw his life and, and the danger that he was going to be living under. Wow. Wow. That really graphically shows the, the pressure and the, the stress that Trigon would have been under um, communicating this, this information to the CIA. Can you go through that first dead drop you do for Trigon and the the lengths you go to ensure you're avoiding surveillance? Right. Um, the first successful dead drop I made to him was out in a park in Moscow called Park Pobiedi. And Park Pobiedi was a war memorial park. It was a lot of people didn't go there. It was certainly within the city limits. Uh, you could get there by bus or by foot. Um, and so this site, this dead drop site, had been cased by previous officers. I had not cased this site. And it was supposed to be a car toss site where the driver, it was a one-way road, so the driver would be driving down this one-way road through the middle of the park he would roll down his window of his car and he would pitch this log out the window aiming for a specific light post. So that was where I was headed. Now, it was almost four or five months since I had arrived, so I was okay to go out and deliver this. Everyone seemed to have confidence in me. So I left work in the embassy and um, got the package from our office there. It was a log about a foot and a half. Um, the, the spy materials were in a hollow that we had made in the log and then recovered so it didn't seem hollow. Um, and I took off in my car, drove home to my apartment, and went up into my apartment with the log along. and. Um, change clothes. I put on dark clothes for the uh, street so I didn't look American at all. Um, I put the package 
in the waistband of my pants under my arm so that I didn't have to carry it in my purse. It wouldn't fit, actually. My purse wasn't that big. And I went then down and got into my little orange car and drove away from my apartment. I have the SR100 on and I am listening and I'm eager to watch movement of any cars that might correlate to my movements. I went down, headed towards the embassy, which would be a logical direction. And then I started diverting from a normal route to the embassy and got farther and farther and farther away from any logical route. Um, I would go in down into dead ends and I would listen and I would watch. But it became very clear to me that no one was following me. Now, when you've established that, you have to be careful that you don't drive through a, a group waiting for you or waiting for someone else. And by chance, they would pick up on you. So I really had to stay in the outskirts of the center city. After two hours of driving like this, I would pull into a parking place, not from far from a restaurant or a theater, um, where other diplomatic cars were parked. I had diplomatic DO Ford license tags on my car, so I was well uh, identified. They could identify me as an American by my car. So at that point, after two hours, I would park my car and get out and get into the metro subway station. Um, this was, of course, before they hung cameras in every corner of every station of every subway in the world. And I would go into the subway and get on one uh, line of the subway and ride that for several stops. And then I would change and get on another line eventually making my way to my final stop, but I changed several times. You know, when I sat in the subway car, I didn't look up at people's eyes. You didn't connect eyes at all on the street with Soviet citizens. You kind of kept your eyes down. You never looked them straight in the eye. And when I looked down, what I was looking for were shoes. Because you could recognize someone several stops or several lines on the subway later by their shoes. Because surveillance were very good at changing jackets or hats or, or any kind of bright clothing, but they never changed their shoes. And you could identify people by their shoes. So I would look at the shoes and keep my eyes down. I would get off. I would change trains. I would go a different way. And eventually, I would get out on the street. Now, I have started at 6 o'clock at night from my apartment. And now it's 9 or 9.30 at night. And I am walking another mile to this park. When I get there, um, you know, people say, weren't you afraid? Well, there's there was no... No crime in Moscow at that time. People it just didn't. It was very, very well controlled. And there were people out walking all the time, day and night. They they shared apartments, so it, basically they hot-racked. They allowed other people to come in and sleep, and they would go out 
grandmothers would take babies out and walk them late at night. So there were people out, but they were all casuals. They didn't care about me in my little gray coat walking casually along with purpose. Um, so I would walk out to this park. Like I said, the, the street went through one way, but it came towards me. And I was, I walked in the park under a canopy of trees over on one side of the road. So I was well hidden from the road. I walked down into the park and came um, even with the numbered light, light pole. And when I saw that nobody was around, I walked up to the light pole. I loosened the log from my, inside my pants and then let it slowly fall down onto the ground. And I immediately walked away. I walked down into the park farther and then I cut away and into an area where there were large apartment buildings. And I spent my time for an hour and a half then walking through those apartment buildings grounds. Um, like I said, a lot of people out walking at night. And then after an hour and a half, I would walk back to that lamppost, retracing my steps and then coming up and walking through the park to make no, sure nobody was really around. And when I did this the first time, there on the ground, near where I had dropped the log, was a crushed milk carton. It was a pyramid-shaped milk carton, a child's milk carton. So I walked over to it. It had the remains of a wet mustard plaster on it. It is orange-yellow kind of goop. They use mustard plasters when people had... Uh, pneumonia or bronchitis they put this on their back and put a hot towel on it and it would get very hot so the agent had taken a mustard plaster bought one in the drugstore and he would then put water on it and then drape it over this milk carton well it looked like baby poop or or vomit of some sort of course an animal wouldn't touch it it was disgusting so I always had a plastic bag, and I put the package inside the plastic bag and put it inside my purse, and then casually walked out of the woods, back to the subway station, back the way I came, and then back to my car. I would drive home and go back up to my apartment and sleep with that plastic bag under my pillow with my hand on it. It was a long evening after a full day's work. But I have to tell you, it was the most exciting thing I could ever do. I wondered what the other people in the embassy could ever be doing that was as exciting and as valuable as what I had just accomplished. I really was very excited. I have to tell you that I kept a, a canvas bag in the front seat of my car. Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week to be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War. 
As a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. Um, it had various things in it I'd take with me to work and home, and I always put a can of beer in there. And it was Carlsberg. That's all we drank in Moscow, the green Carlsberg cans. And when I would get in my car and drive away, I would pop the top on that beer and have my own little celebration as I drove away on my way home to my apartment. One, one, I was thirsty. Two, it was just so exciting, um, thrilling. Um, That adrenaline rush cannot be compared. That's such a great description you've given us there, Marty. I really appreciate that. And, you know, the the tension you must have been under there. And even when you're in the car, you're not sort of there yet, are you? You're, That's right. You've still got to get home, get in your flat and still get this package to the embassy the next day. That's right. In this case, he had uh, given us a roll of 35 millimeter um, film, which he had taken pictures of documents using a 35 millimeter camera. He would take documents out of his job and take them home and take pictures with his 35 millimeter camera and then return the documents the next day. He was a gutsy, gutsy agent. And so this film inside this package was not developed so that anyone, if they found it, would probably expose it inadvertently. And it would erase, of course, the damage she was trying to do with these documents. Eventually, though, he used his, we we gave him in that, I gave him in that package, in that log, the camera, uh, in the pen. Um, and that's, and eventually that's how I gave him the pen with the poison in it as well. Were you aware at this point the importance of the information that Trigon was passing to you? That, that was different. Um, in most places around the world, when we collect intelligence from an agent, we look at it right there in the office. But in this case, the, the documents that we collected in these miniature cassettes in this camera pen, um, we pouched directly back to headquarters because it was too risky for the tech there in, in Moscow to develop them. It took some very uh, high-tech equipment to develop them. So it was quite a while before we had any understanding of the value of of his intelligence. Um, it was... Well, I have to tell you, it was exceptional, the intelligence he gave us. He's, he's had a job in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, which had um, all, all the incoming uh, traffic or documents from all the Soviet embassies overseas came across his desk. So every report that any Soviet ambassador wrote in any city, Paris, Hong Kong, Tokyo, Mexico City, uh, 
Rio uh, or Brasilia and Washington, D.C. We saw the, the ambassador's original reporting back to the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. And this became the most exceptional window into what the Soviets were doing and what they were planning, their plans and intentions in a country. What were they doing in Cairo then? They were bringing in Soviet weaponry. They were trying to get Cairo to go along with this Soviet way of life. They were trying to get these countries to work on the Soviet side of the Cold War. We had that window into the Soviet plans. It's like you're your opposing soccer team, you knew their game plan. And that's what we had. He had reports about Anatoly Dobrynin meeting with Henry Kissinger and Zbigniew Brzezinski and all the top negotiators in the SALT talks. We got to see all of those documents that the ambassadors wrote up about all these negotiations. It was exceptional intelligence. But in Moscow, we never knew that. They didn't tell us all that. We really didn't have a need to know. We just knew that it was highly valued. They only disseminated it within our government in five copies to the president, vice president, to the secretary of state, to the secretary of defense, and to the head of the National Security Council, which are the leaders of our country. So it was it was amazing. Yes. So Trigon comes back to Moscow in 1972, and he's continually passing your information through to 1977. Then in April, you pick up a package, and there's some anomalies in there that that raise some suspicions. When the tech unpacked the package. There were anomalies in the packing. You know, as human beings, we're very, we're very dr driven by habits. And that there seemed to be something different in Trigon's packaging his spy um, materials to us. Um, and the tech said there were some things that seemed different, but not enough to say that it was not Trigon. Um, so we sent that package of the film back to headquarters and they developed it. And they sent us just a brief, you know, we thought there were some anomalies in his reporting, but we'll let you know. So we had some uh, feeling that uh, something had changed. So that was in April. So in June, June 28th, when I went out again to the woods, to this place in Park Pibieti, to put down a log, um, it was pouring. It was raining cats and dogs. It was, I, I, they didn't have umbrellas in Moscow. Nobody used umbrellas. So I had on a rain jacket and I was soaked head to toe. And I went in and put down Trigon's package. I left the area like I always did, walked away. I had no noise on my SR-100. After an hour and a half, I came back. It was still raining. And, you know, when you walk in the woods, 
If it's not raining, it's generally very quiet, and you can hear the crunch-crunch of your feet and, of course, anyone else in the woods. So this was very unnerving, walking through the woods in this pouring rain, and I really couldn't hear anything around me except the rain on the trees. So as I came into the woods, over on my left, in that roadway, was a small paneled truck parked there. I had never seen any traffic in the woods, and I had never seen anyone parked in the woods. The light inside the cabin was on, the dome light, and the windows were all steamed. So I thought, ah, it's a lover's lane, couple in there kissing and carrying on. But, you know, it was too close to the site, and I was very concerned that maybe there was an ambush. So I continued walking through the woods. I didn't go near the lamppost, and I came down kind of a hill, and as I came to the bottom of the hill, still under this canopy of trees on the path, a man stepped from beside me, right in front of me, and he and I startled. We didn't hear each other coming. He was surprised. I was surprised, and I continued walking on down the path. So I run into this man. I walk, I'm walking through the woods. The man didn't seem to follow me, um, but his 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 big old raincoat was very big. It had a cape, and he had a military cap on with a shower cap on the top of it to keep the rain off of it. And in his hand was a very large flashlight. When I think about it, it gets larger by the minute. Um, but he, he didn't, I, I walked right on past him and continued on my way like I had purpose. So as I got down a ways, I decided I would step off the path under a tree, a bush really, and be able to look back to see if he was following me. But he wasn't, and he didn't come after me. So I waited there for about 15 or 20 minutes, hard pounding, crossed the street to the other side and walked under the canopy across the street back up towards where that white van was. As I walked up, there was no one in the woods and the van was gone. So I diagonaled across the street to where the package was and there on the ground was my log. Trigon had not been there that night. I, I picked it up, of course, and went home and, of course, went in the next day. And now now we're really worried about Trigon, what has happened and why why wasn't he there? So in the event of him not picking up that package, do you have an alternative site arranged? No, there was in that package for him a calendar of all the dates for the next drops to him. So he is out of drop sites. This was a do-or-die kind of drop where he would learn where the sites were and what date and time. So the only means of communicating with him was um, through a site he had used previously with me, which was on the top of the railroad bridge that crossed the Moscow River within Moscow. It was in a window inside a pillar which was um, on either side of the railroad bridge. And a pedestrian walkway went through that pillar. 
So in order to give him the signal that we would put a package there for him, we developed a radio broadcast for him. We encoded a message to him, which was then broadcast uh, from Western Europe uh, uh, to his radio in Moscow. The message said, if you can um, park in a certain place the night before, or if you can't do that, Make a mark on a child crossing sign. And we gave him the location for that. And then put your package, and we gave him a certain time period, on in this pillar on the railroad bridge, which was codenamed Satoon. So he had, like I said, he'd used this site before. He was aware of where it was, and he, he had got the timing from our broadcast. On July 14th, I drove by where he was supposed to have his car parked, along with several other people in our office. Many of us went home this way from the embassy. It was a very easy way to drive. So there was no car parked there. So the next morning, coming into work, I drove by the child crossing sign. Before I even got to the child crossing sign, there was a mark on the sign it looked like it had been stenciled on in red. I could see it from such a distance that when I drove by it, I didn't even have to look up at it. It was alarming to me. It was clearly made so that someone would not miss it. I went into work. I went up to the office and I said, the signal's there, but I have big doubts about who made it. But we had a new chief in the office. And he was dead set on going out that night. So I went and worked my full day in the embassy. And at six o'clock, I went up to this, the office and picked up a black a rock. It looked like a piece of black tar asphalt for the road, just a chunk of asphalt. But of course, inside was all his spy gear. I went home. I changed my clothes. Now, it is July 15th, and it is daylight outside in Moscow in the summer. I went and parked my, drove my two and a half hours. I saw no one. And, of course, now being daylight, it's easy to, to watch and see whether cars are following you. You don't just have to look at headlights behind you. And no one was following me. I parked my car. I locked the door and went and I got into the subway. I rode several stops and several lines like I'd been done before. When I got out at the subway stop, I walked through a park. I actually stopped and tied my shoe. One of the classic ways to stop, pause, look around, see if you have surveillance. There was no chatter on my receiver. It was quiet. I walked then out to the bridge. When I got there, I realized it was a little early, so I walked away from the bridge on the sidewalk along the river. As I turned around to come back towards the bridge, I saw three men across the, si the street on the other opposite sidewalk. But Novodevichy Cemetery was there, and since it was a beautiful night out, um, these three men walked into the cemetery. It's where Khrushchev is buried and the cosmonauts. It's a place you can walk. It's beautiful. So they walked in there, and I kind of chalked them off as being casuals on this street. So then I went, and I walked up the 47 steps to the top of the 
railroad bridge where the pedestrian pathway was. I went into the tower. I stopped. I took the package out of my purse. I put it into the window. And it's a deep window in the stone pillar. I pushed it all the way in arm's length. Like I said, he and I had used this before. And I walked out in the middle of the bridge and I stopped and I listened and I watched and there was no one around. So I turned around, I came back through the pillar and back down the stairs. I was about the fourth step from the bottom when here came those three men towards me. And the middle man, he pushed, he threw his arms out to the side to indicate that the other two should flank me and not let me run. The guy came towards me. The two fellows on either side grabbed me by my arms. And, of course, I knew what, what had happened. Uh, I, I, of course, wanted to be in denial, thinking they were going to mug me or rape me, but I knew why they grabbed me. So I started hollering and I crossed my arms over my chest to protect my purse. I knew my purse had nothing in it but my diplomatic card and my diplomatic driver's license and a Kleenex. But when I crossed my arms over my chest, I drove that man's hand, who was holding my arm, into the receiver, which was attached to the left side of my bra. Now they think I have a weapon. And now it gets hot and heavy, and then the van comes from under the bridge, and it's like a circus van with all these people streaming out of it. They're struggling now to get this receiver off the side of my bra, but they have no clue what, what Velcro is and how you have to rip it apart. They're trying to pull it off. So the picture of me with their hands inside the front of my blouse is, is quite amusing. It's on the back cover of my book uh, because it's such a startling, awful picture. So they finally get it off. That Within moments, they have the package that I had placed, and they're holding it up beside me. In the van, there was a man with a big camera and a huge flash on it, and they're taking pictures of me. I am speaking in English that they have to let go of me. I am a diplomat. They cannot hold me. They must call the embassy. And I gave them the phone number. The man in the van who had a suit on, and I always call him the suit, um, he was quite high ranking in the group that had been investigating Trigon. He told me to keep my voice down. And of course, what I had wanted was to alert Trigon by my loud screaming, because I was sure Trigon would be in the vicinity and I could warn him away. But of course, that was probably not the case. So after they had searched my purse and they had taken the pictures, they put me into the van and off we went to Lubyanka prison. That's, of course, where Stalin disappeared all those people during the pogroms in, in Russia. At that point, I thought, you know, this is a very bad, <laughs> bad situation for this woman. Um, and they are talking among themselves. I put my head down at one point to catch my breath, to get hold of my screaming brain that's wondering what's going to happen. And they thought I had fainted, damn woman. 
And, um, you know, they're patting me on the shoulder. I hope she's all right. Um, is she all right? And of course, then I pick my head up and I knew that I had to use my brain to record all their comments. Um, we drove then to Lubyanka. They got me out of the van and into a big conference room where there was a single table in the middle with uh, six chairs and two microphones and a piece of Pravda newspaper in the middle. And that's where the package is laid uh, on that paper. Um, I must tell you, it was, um, it, it was an experience like none other in my life ever. I would imagine the word experience is a is a little bit of an understatement there, but um, I understand that you uh, managed to make uh, the eyes water of a couple of the <laughs> KGB guys while you were uh, being dragged away. Yes, there's a video um, that was made um, uh, in New York, and it's on TV. Um, and in that, these two Soviet goons who were there at the site say I was really very violent and um, I managed to kick a couple of these men and one of them was hospitalized and I guess the, the comment was made that he couldn't have sex for several months. So I guess I landed the, the bright blow, <laughs> I don't know. And you know, I really don't remember being that violent, but uh, they really, they they said that I was like a caged tiger. I was angry and and quite violent. I wouldn't tell you that I did that, but it, it was what he said. <laughs> One of the guys that sat next to me in the interrogation, or so they called it, um, showed me a bruise on his shin where I had kicked him. So, yeah, I guess I, I took my licks. What goes through your mind when you arrive at the uh, the Lubyanka? I mean, as you've described it, it it's the place where probably thousands disappeared during Stalin's purges in the 1930s. You've been caught red-handed trying to pass information and espionage tools to a Soviet citizen. Do you think your diplomatic immunity is going to hold up here? Or do you think you might be heading off to the Gulag soon? <laughs> well, no, I I was certain that my diplomatic immunity would hold. Um, there's always that. It's interesting. During that period of time, there was an agreement between our governments that diplomatic immunity meant if you were caught doing anything um, outside of your diplomatic duties, uh, you would be sent away. You'd be sent home. Um, and that was the agreement. If the FBI arrested a Soviet in the U.S. and he was doing something inappropriate, he would be expelled. And that's what I knew the agreement was. And I knew that's what would happen. I I never doubted that in my mind, which was a very good thing, because I think had I doubted that, it might have been a different experience for me. Um, but I knew that I would be sent home um, forthwith. and and declared persona non grata, all of which happened. When the KGB start questioning you, what what are you 
able to say is is the standard operating procedure to ask for somebody to come from the embassy and and just say no comment to uh, any questions no i told them that i didn't know anything about what they were talking about and that i had i would simply it wouldn't answer anything and at some point i said i work for a man in the embassy and they went and called this man a nice embassy officer called him at home and he was uh, in charge of the consular section, and they told him they had arrested this American woman. And he said, well, I'll be right down. And he came in, and he was so shocked to see it was me. Um, you know, I think he thought I was a little secretary in the embassy, and what would she be doing in Lubyanka? Um, and so I just held the line with that and said, I, I don't know anything about what they're talking about. And he supported me. He said, she knows nothing. And then um, they opened the package in front of me, which I thought would be rather difficult. And it was. This was all material intended for our agent. And their having it would expose this agent. And, of course, that, that's an Achilles heel that I would have given them this information about our agent. Um, as they opened it, they pulled out different things that were in there, the money, the jewelry, the things we always gave him. And then they pulled out the pen. Now, I knew that pen in that package was a camera because there were cassettes in there that went with it. But the chief interrogator looked horrified, and he said, no one touched that, put it over on the side. Yeah, he said that in Russian. And because I understood what they were saying, that was my singular clue that he knew about the pen with the poison in it. And that was a sobering moment when I realized that maybe Trigon had used that poison pen. That was really all the information I obtained, and the most significant from that whole time there in Lubyanka. They arrested me at 10.30 at night. They put me in the van, took me to Lubyanka, and they went through this kind of very lightweight interrogation. The chief interrogator really didn't want me to say very much. And then at 2 o'clock in the morning, he looked at me and he said, you can go. So I stood up. I picked up my watch, which they'd taken off, my necklace, which they'd taken off, and my purse. And I said to this American man with me, I said, let's go. And we left. Um, it, it was astounding that it wasn't longer. I had feelings that we were going to be there all night. And we went back to the embassy and went into um, the up to the Marine Guard, and then down into our, our CIA offices. There, everyone was waiting for me. Um, and, of course, I told them the worst had happened. And that night, I spent sitting on the floor going through every single minute and moment that I could remember, all the details that are so fresh in your mind right at the moment. I was exhausted. I. I I could really not even process what I surmised had happened to Trigon. 
And I went home the next day. I never went back to my apartment. I went home the next day. I flew out of Moscow to Vienna, Vienna to Frankfurt, spent the night there, and then came back to Washington, D.C. My, um, my deputy chief, who'd been in Moscow my first year there, met me at the airport, and it was fun. Um, he was there with his wife, of course, who I knew very well, and security officers. And then there were two men who were standing just down the hall from them. And when I came through the door, they turned around and left. And we determined later on that they were KGB officers who had gone to Dulles Airport to make sure I'd gotten home all right. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Um, the fact that you weren't hearing anything on your SRR 100 would indicate that the, the Soviets knew that the CIA may be listening in. Is, is that correct? No, I, I, don't, I don't think so. Um, or we're using radio silence? Radio silence, I believe that. And at that point, um, the agent was already dead. And they knew where I was going. And they may have followed several of the CIA officers that night. But they knew one would end up on that bridge because of that radio broadcast. They had all of Trigon's spy gear by then. So they knew where I was going to end up or who, where one of us was going to end up or someone. Because when they, they grabbed me, they, the chief interrogator, the, the suit there, said something about she's the courier. And I got the feeling that they were not um, well aware of who I was, how long I'd been there, or even where I worked in the embassy, in the, the cover office where I had worked in the embassy. Um, it was, a, you know, out of bad things, you, you're, you're trying to find all these details. Um, and, and it almost was amusing to me that they seemed to have no knowledge of who I was. So it looks like you disappeared completely under their radar and they had no idea. Right, right. Even when you were in the area and those uh, men were entering the, the cemetery, they, they possibly didn't have any idea that you were connected to uh, Trigon. It's only when you uh, did the dead drop that they knew who you were. Amazing, amazing. Um. When you returned to the U.S., what was your reception like at the CIA? Was did anybody feel that you know you should be blamed for for Trigon? Um, no, that was very clear. Um, they really felt like I'd been ambushed, and they really didn't think at the time that I'd caused this. Of course, I thought I had. I, I thought that somewhere along the way I had slipped up and I had taken a surveillance to some drop. I really believed that I had some culpability in losing Trigon. Um, but the people around me at headquarters were very, very uh, supportive. My chief, who had left Moscow, the week before I went and did this last drop, 
uh, came back. He'd been uh, holidaying in London, and he came back the day after I arrived home, and he was horrified what had, what had happened, and he and I commiserated about it, and, you know, it was it was clear that it was a horrible loss, and we all were feeling it. But I never felt they ever doubted my word or that I had not done everything I could to protect Trigon. I spent a week there in headquarters being debriefed, and that's when we learned about more about the anomalies in the April package, that something was going on with Trigon back in April that we simply didn't know about. Um, and so I went home to Florida thinking that I, you know, I felt guilt. I felt badly. This was the only reason I was in Moscow. It had become my total focus and something had happened. Well, it went on for a long time till we found out what had happened to Trigon. It was about three or four weeks later that we learned through the grapevine, through KGB officers around the world. And, you know, they had this grapevine and they all talked and they they told us that um, the KGB had arrested Trigon in his apartment. They had gone in and um, searched his apartment. And they had stripped him down. And, you know, it, it was clear he was under arrest and this was not going to go well for him. So he asked the man in charge there if he could have paper and a pen and he would write a full confession. So they gave him the paper and his pen was lying on the desk. So he picked the pen up and he started to write. He wrote just a few words. He was clearly agitated. He put the pen and in his mouth and bit down. And he instantly passed out. They were horrified. Um, they called the ambulance. They took him to the hospital, but he was almost dead, and he died. And that was on the 21st of June, a week before I went to the woods in the rainstorm. So by the time I went to the woods, he was already dead. And they knew somehow that Park Pabieti was a place that he often went, and that's why they were in the woods that night. The Soviet KGB officers who were there were involved in an investigation of Trigon. And in a book that they have written, and it's on my website in English, um, they talk about what they were doing in the woods that night. And there were over a hundred of them looking for where Trigon would go to put down a package. But of course, by then, he'd already been dead a week. And I seemed to walk through the last of that big group. It, it's a, a, even more horrifying than it was. <laughs> so what happened to Trigon? How did they find him? Well, 
we didn't learn that until 1984 when the FBI arrested a man who had worked for CIA as a contract linguist. He was a Czech national who had emigrated to the U.S. in 1968. He went to New York with his wife. He went to Columbia University, where he studied English and all different things. Um, he and his wife were part of a wife-swapping sex club, and eventually they moved to Washington, D.C. Because he was Czech, he spoke most of the languages in Eastern Europe, as well as Russian. And he managed to get a job as a contract translator with CIA. This man was the one who transcribed the tapes that were sent back from Bogota, Colombia. It was those tapes, those tapes were the ones we had made of the telephone tap in the Soviet embassy on that phone. And from that, he realized over a period of time that we, the agency, were targeting a Soviet in Bogota. But it was a large embassy. Eventually, he, t he told his Czech and KGB intel officers in in Washington that he thought we had a, a recruited or were interested in a Soviet who was assigned there. The Soviets then, of course, had to do an investigation to determine who this spy was. And of course, then this man, Carl Kocher, was arrested in 1984 by the FBI when we found out what he'd been doing. And he was uh, convicted and jailed, imprisoned. Um, and then within the year, he was swapped for some Soviets who wanted to get out of Moscow. Uh, it was a large group of Soviets. Among them was Anatoly Sharonsky, who went to um, Israel. Anatoly Sharonsky, you must look him up. He is a fabulous um, Israeli statesman, he, he really, but he was a Soviet is a Soviet Jewish dissident in Moscow, and he was among those who were swapped for Karl Kocher and his wife. Karl Kocher still alive in Prague. Wow, wow, what a story, what a story! And and Trigon also had a daughter in Bogota that he never knew about with the uh the the woman that he'd been seeing yes so trigon um he his girlfriend her name was pilar she had she was pregnant when he left bogota and he went back to moscow but she made um the case officers there in bogota promise never to tell him um she did not want him to uh pull the plug and come and and use the escape plan too early or endanger himself. So um, she kept that a secret. And of course, eventually he um, died. The baby was born in March of 75. So he lived in Moscow two years um, while this 
little girl was alive in Madrid. I, I told my husband as I was writing my book that the worst moment I would have would be when that young child, when that girl, when that woman appeared on our doorstep and said, what did you do to my father? And I would have to tell her that story. Well, it didn't quite happen that way. She sent me an email. Uh, a journalist in Bogota um, had found had found my book and had uh, was aware of of this daughter and told her about my book. And from that, she emailed me and told me that I am Trigon's daughter and told me enough about him and his her mother that I knew she was bona fide. And I have since met her and traveled to see her several times. She has written her own book about her father, this the spy for CIA. Now, we've been calling this man Trigon through, throughout the story, but I, I think it's only proper that we mention his real name. What was that? Alexander Ogorodnik. An incredibly brave man, incredibly brave. Really appreciate you uh, sharing that incredible story of both your career and Alexander Grodnik's career as well. Now, there was one question I did want to ask you. How did you end up meeting President Jimmy Carter? So when I came back from Moscow um, to headquarters, um, I was invited, of course, to see the director of Central Intelligence, Stansfield Turner. I was taken to his office in the headquarters building, and he wanted to know what had happened. So I told him the whole story, and he said, would you be willing to go meet with President Carter tomorrow? <laughs> of course, you know, why wouldn't you? Um, I, I said, certainly. And um, so... The next day, I drove down with a friend down to Washington and and went into the White House with Stansfield Turner and up into the Oval Office. It it was, you know, this was a kind of a fairy tale. This was I couldn't believe this was happening. Um, I went in and sat in the Oval Office with Stansfield Turner, Zbigniew Brzezinski, and Walter Mondale and. After a few minutes, here came President Carter walking in. He sat right next to me. I had a replica of the package, and I was told I had, I think, nine minutes to talk. And I think after 25 minutes, I finally finished the story. And President Carter, I'm not sure he was totally aware of what we were doing in Moscow, um, but he was, of course, aware of the the intelligence we provided to him. Um, he thanked me. I stood up and took my rock and uh, started out the door. And Zbigniew Brzezinski uh, said to me, I greatly admire your courage. And I thanked him. Um, and then I walked out of the White House. Um, yes, quite, a, quite an experience. On Friday, I meet the KGB. And on Tuesday, I meet the President of the United States. An amazing experience. Do make sure you visit the episode notes where there's videos, photos, 
and links to Marty's book. Now, this podcast would not exist without our financial supporters, and I want to thank one and all of them for their generous support. If you want to help us, just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information. And you can also join our Facebook group where listeners just like you continue the Cold War conversation. Thanks very much for listening. It is really appreciated. Goodbye. Not enjoying the ads? Well, you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. By becoming a monthly or annual supporter, you'll enjoy ad-free listening, become a part of our community, receive the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster, and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information.